Welcome back to uh, Colonia Casta. Season 2 kick things off. Uh, we got Chris Hagen, well, world-renowned turtle aficionado and director of animal management at the Turtle Survival Center. Uh, I'll hand off to you, Jack. All right, so Chris and turtles. That's a classic question we always start with. Yeah, well, I, I don't, not sure there was a time where I wasn't really interested in turtles. You know, as soon as I could start kind of thinking for myself and noticing the outside world, um, just always been there. Reptiles, amphibians, herpetology in general, and paleontology and habitats and um, just natural history of, of everything, really. I was always interested in, um, you know, about four to five years old in that range. And I grew up in uh, Dayton, Ohio, and a little, uh, it was in Columbus a little bit, or I was born in Dayton and mostly grew up in Dayton, but I was in Columbus when I was about um, four years old, three and four years old for a little while, and we lived near the Columbus Zoo. My mother would take me there a lot, and Columbus Zoo had a huge turtle collection, of course, back then, and, um, but uh, <laughs> along the river, we lived near a river, and I found the bones of a turtle. I don't remember what kind of turtle it was. If it was a, a map turtle or, 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 or what, I don't, I don't recall, but um, I did find the, the, the skeleton of a turtle and you know, that's always been imprinted in my mind. And, and so, yeah, just ever, just turtles, 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 and, and, and everything, I mean, natural history in general, I do consider myself always have a generalist naturalist uh, to everything in the universe, but uh, I am these days pretty hyper-focused on turtles, of course. I think it's a pretty similar story for a lot of us. I mean, I remember being yeah. four or five years old, finding box turtles in my backyard and just totally enamored with them. And it just oh, yeah. kind of grew from there. I'd go down to the creek and catch everything, snakes, mm -hmm. turtles, and frogs, and the whole nine yards. Yeah. Similar oh, story yeah. to to Jason too, coming from Ohio and, and getting interested. Yes. Ohio follows you yeah. everywhere. There's no, no escaping it. <laughs> it's a breeding ground for humans. Unfortunately. <laughs> so well, yes. Everyone's born here. No one wants to stay. That's correct. I left Ohio oh, I in 1997. Open to leave once I've finished school. So I, I can't blame yeah. you on that one. Uh, I guess like to get into things here. Um, could you speak to like your uh, I guess your, your career pathway to like the position you are uh, currently in? And, um, sure. Your time at like SREL and how you got to where you're at today. Yeah, um, I, I guess I'm really fortunate. Like, I guess starting like growing up in Ohio. I mean, Ohio has a very rich history of herpetology. Um, I was involved with my local Museum of Natural History and the Dayton Herpetological Society um, by 1983 or four, three, I believe. Um, I was 11 years old. Um, I was teaching environmental education, you know, as a volunteer at the during, um, you know, like programs with herpetology and and stuff like that. So I just always been involved in that. And I've, you know, back then, this was in the early you know, mid eighties. I mean, most people didn't even know what the word herpetology was. And, and if you did work with amphibians and reptiles, you were, you were 
quite strange generally and it is that is kind of true yes but um it uh it, it was just i was immersed in it all the time I, and i belonged to the cincinnati herp society the columbus herp society NOAA, the northern ohio association of herpetologists toledo and i you know i would just catch rides with people i mean again i'm 12 years old and you know it was just a different time you know there wasn't a, there wasn't much safety concern you just kind of did we were, we were just kind of feral you know kids back then doing whatever we wanted and um you know we get in car you know, our parents didn't care getting in cars with people that are 10 12 15 years old old guys you know snake guys or whatever and we're going to a hurt meeting or going down to south carolina to go uh herping and, and catching stuff or, or whatever and it was just never an issue so I was involved with that a lot very early on. And um, when I was about 12 years old, I met Jim Harrison, who's the owner and director of the um, Kentucky Reptile Zoo. Um, before he was at that location, it was the Miami Valley Serpentarium in Ohio, um, in Dayton, Ohio. And it was more of a traveling um, facility. Um, we'd go to you know festivals, carnivals, whatever, and do interpretation, teach people about snakes and reptiles. and and um, so I was heavily involved with that very early on when he started that. Um, and, and, and again, with the, the Dayton Herp Society. And that's it's just what I've always done. I've ne I never even thought about, you know, pursuing it as a career because it's just what I do. I was never it was never like a career goal because it was again, that's all I did. It was one of the main things that I did. And uh, and uh, it, and I've never really had to do anything else but herpetology. And yeah, I did eventually go to school and you know formalize my knowledge with a degree because I was actually teaching at a college before I had any type of degree teaching herpetology at a, a college in southeastern Ohio um, called Hawking College near OU. Um, hung out there for a couple of years and then went out west to Washington State and got my bachelor's of science uh, there at a, a school in Olympia, Washington, where I did a lot of work with amphibians. And then I did a lot of work with amphibians after that as well for many years, um, kind of gypsy biology, you know, just seasonal positions around the country, worked in Hawaii um, uh, uh, and Hawaii Volcanoes National Park on hawksbill turtles for eight or nine months, one year, uh, 99, I believe. Um, <clears throat> and uh, worked in the Smoky Mountain National Park in the uh, Columbia River Gorge, again with salamanders. Uh, if turtles and crocodilians didn't exist, I would definitely be a salamander person, a biologist. I am, but I, you know, I, I don't really focus on them. I have a strong interest in them. Um, and uh, then I was, uh, I went to Borneo for a while. I was going to work with Indranil Das. I was going to work and do a master's degree at the University of Malaysia Sarawak, and this was in 2002, because I had just left the Santa Barbara Zoo. I was there for a couple of years as well, working as the herpetologist there in California and then went to Borneo, was there for, spent like three or four weeks with me, I think about three weeks with uh, um, <clears throat> Neil Doss. And um, we just kind of came to the conclusion that we would never find enough turtles to make a worthy uh, uh, master's project out of it. So from there, I just went traveling through Indonesia for a few months, you know, I went looking for the first time I, I saw Uwanawai in the wild was in 2002 and, you know, down to Komodo again. I'd been there before, but, you know, I wanted to go again and, you know, just seeing some of the, the farther uh, eastern islands. 
Um, and then ended up back in Hawaii and was just kind of bumming around on Waikiki um, area because that's where my girlfriend's grandmother lived and at the time. And and we walked down to the internet cafe and searched for jobs on Texas A&M uh, website on the job board and and everywhere else that I could and found this position at the Savannah River Ecology Lab. And I always knew I would live in the Southeast eventually, like kind of end up here. Uh, I just wanted to go do everything else first, live in Alaska, Hawaii, the West Coast, uh, even the Northeast a little bit. And um, then did eventually, um, I, I got this job after applying uh, from Hawaii. I got an SRL working in the genetics lab, which I've never you know, done microbiology really other than in school a little bit. So, but that was a time where there were a lot more papers coming out and I'm really into taxonomy and biogeography. And, and so genetics were coming into play much, much more. What, you know, it wasn't just morphology and, and, and geography. Um, we were looking at genetics now to, to describe species. And so I didn't know a lot about it. Uh, I did take genetics courses in college, like I mentioned, but um, I, I wanted to learn about it firsthand. So I took this position because it did have an alligator component to it. So I'm a crocodilian biologist too. So that was, it was, it was cool. I was gonna you know, learn about um, you know, genetics and the specific position was developing microsatellite primers. And I did that for 11 years, but also did field work with American alligators, a little bit with turtles and working, and of course, I knew Kurt already, Kurt Buhlman and Tracy and, and Whit Gibbons. I mean, all these turtle, all this turtle knowledge under one roof, you know, just such a rarity to, to be there. So it was a dream job for me, you know, just, work, you know, working gel jockey by day, alligator, you know, research at night and, and, and fishing and because uh, we're catching bass and taking blood samples as well. And on an unfished lake, I mean, anyone, any fisherman would love to fish that lake. Um, but, and so yeah, there for 11 years and always with the TSA, of course, going back to 2001, when the, the, the organization was formed, uh, I, I've been, uh, I was a founding member of the TSA. So always involved and through all that time, you know, I'm still maintaining assurance colonies at SREL. It was never part of my job or Kurt's job or Witt's job. We just did it. Um, and, and no one stopped us from doing it really. And, uh, it was a program of sorts and we, you know, we, we, we worked at the best we could, but we just did it. And basically in our free time, but we had hundreds and high, we had over, well over a thousand turtles there. And, um, and then the lab was shutting down in 2007 or eight, and then it didn't. And it went from like over 200 people down to 35 skeleton crew. I was lucky to not get laid off because I was all of my um, salary came from outside funding because we did a semi-commercial business of developing microsatellite primers for people all over the world. So I have over 300 types of plants and animals I've developed primers for, including uh, I think for turtles, I did Batiger trivitata um, based on the one animal that Maurice now has that came out of uh, the New York collection. Um, so I took a blood sample from that back in like 2006 or seven, and we developed primers from that and cross amplified them across uh, Borneoensis and Affinis. And, uh, and uh, yeah, I think those are still being, that's still being used today to this day. So, um, and then yeah, again, at the same time, I'm 
lobbying the TSA, like we need a, a, you know, an animal management coordinator or manager. There was never funds um, for that type of thing, but then eventually it did happen. And in 2010, I became the, the director of animal management for the TSA. And uh, for three years from 2010 until 2013, I did both jobs full time, both my job at SREL and, and, and I just kept my office there. I did everything for the TSA out of the University of Georgia SREL um, in, in South Carolina. And uh, then this facility became available from a friend of mine uh, who had built it as a crocodile conservation center. He offered it to me to use and just to keep turtles at because he went through a divorce and a lot of the animals had been moved already. And I basically took that and developed the plan and presented it to the TSA board of directors. And we went forward with purchasing the facility and developing a captive breeding center like the TSA has always wanted. It's just been difficult um, to, to um, you know, secure the funds, the place, the animals, all that stuff. I had the animals. I had access to the animals outside of what I didn't have. And then this place. And it was for the right price at the time. And so uh, we did it. And, um, you know, I am the oldest, longest running employee of the TSA. I was, you know, in a, in a sense, the first like paid employee of the TSA because Heather Lowe was hired before me about eight months or nine months before me, but the TSA never actually paid her. She was paid through, um, she was a, a, a Fort Worth Zoo employee the whole time, even though she just basically did TSA work. Um, and then in 2020, my title shifted from director of animal management to turtle, or I'm sorry, um, director of the Turtle Survival Center. And, um, you know, over the years, I've watched it, you know, the first eight or so years, of the TSA, no employees at all, volunteer run to uh, just Heather and I until 2013. And then when we opened the center, um, we started hiring, you know, more staff for the center and then office staff moving the office from Fort Worth to Charleston, South Carolina. And uh, now, as of right now, I think we're up to 16 employees, if I'm remembering correctly, as of just in the past week or two. So that's the, and we have the most employees here at the center that we've ever had. We're up to uh, seven full-time staff members at the moment. And um, yeah, so it's kind of the, the short version of, of how, how I got here and a lot of other little stuff in between, but um, mostly uh, herpetology work, um, uh, the whole the whole way through had a couple of non-animal related positions for very brief periods of time in my life but um almost always herpetology what kind of work were you doing with the hawksbills in hawaii like specifically that that's pretty interesting yeah so it's um it was a monitoring program that they started i believe in geez i can't remember, remember what year it was the early 90s i believe and on the big island, because uh, that's the, I believe, and I believe they've been found nesting on Maui as well. I think Maui and uh, Hawaii, the big island, are the only two islands they nest on. And, you know, there are green turtles everywhere, Colonia Midas. I mean, everyone, uh, you know, that's what you see everywhere there. But those turtles don't nest on the nine main islands. They nest up in the French frigate shoals. They don't nest there. Um, only the hawksbills nest and they're solitary nesters, if you know, and 
And so there are only like 55 or 60 nesting females in all of Hawaii, or at least there, there was back then, there might be more now. Um, and uh, so we would go out on these remote beaches in the park. Um, we have to hike anywhere from like six, nine, 12 miles. And we'd stay out there for like four or five days at a time and just patrol the beaches all night and, and you know, tag turtles, monitor nests, um, protect nests from uh, introduced predators like mongoose, rats, cats, pigs, those kind of things. Um, we had a few uh, beaches off um, out, out of the national park that we worked at as well. Um, that were uh, always, it was always a, a good time, but yeah, it's just a long-term monitoring program again, tagging and, and you know, taking down da uh, egg data and, and and hatchling data, all that yeah, the normal stuff. That's cool. You don't see so much crossover between freshwater turtles and sea turtles as much, but that that's uh, that sounds like uh, some really interesting work. Yeah, uh, great. And. So going to the SREL, you said you were mostly working kind of in the lab there. Where mm -hmm. I, I assume just being there, you were also kind of vicariously or directly involved with the work that was going on at the sort of in the the wilderness there too. What sure. was that like to to see that sort of the scale of that project? Absolutely incredible. I mean, just this ecological playground, you know, one of the biggest herpetological centers on the planet in terms of the number of people that the legacy the number of people have come through there since the late 60s that have gone on to become professors or working in um uh you know wildlife agencies and and, and stuff like that and it's just uh, to this day you know i still see these people and hang out with these people from 20 years ago people that i've watched people like parker gibbon i've watched him grow up in the marsh on Kiowa, you know, since he was a child um, and and uh, catching terrapins with him and his dad and his grandfather. And we still do, or we will be doing it again in three months. And, uh, you know, more than 20 years of doing that, it's just, you know, incredible stuff. But yeah, back to the Savannah River site, 310 square miles, I think more than a percent of the state of South Carolina. It's a, all these habitat types, 300 or 100 and three or four species of herps identified on that site. And when you had it, when Witt was real active and I saw the tail end of his, uh, you know, his career there uh, before he retired and his last cohort, couple cohorts of students, of masters and PhD students. And just amazing when you have this team of dedicated herpetology students going out, trapping, working on all kinds of snakes, you know, sirens, yeah, you know, every, you know, all the different taxa and just getting to see all that going out on their projects, helping at times and all the really just so many animals that you got to see and the amounts of them. If you were there at the right time, um, when like Seminatrix, the, the black swamp snake, where they would come out by the thousands and thousands or. Uh, I think I believe it was in 2004, one of the greatest things I've ever seen is after a long drought that had been in South Carolina, uh, Ellington Bay, all these Carolina bays, these seasonal wetlands, they're enclosed by um, drift fences and that the drought broke that year and millions and millions of, an, of amphibians came out. It, you know, they're just everywhere. You could not walk through the forest without stepping on toadlets and, and leopard frog uh, metamorphs. They were, we had, you know, there's 140 some buckets 
around this drift fence. And by the time, and I think it was about, um, I can't remember how far it was or how long it was, but it was, it was a good ways, quarter mile or more. And um, by the time you got back to the end, the buckets would be filled again. They just, we, you're dip netting and estimating counts, but uh, you know, a, a, a paper was written when it has like 30 authors on it because all the people that worked on it. We had to run that drift fence 24 hours a day, seven days a week, you know, while it was active because so many animals were being collected in these buckets. And uh, that was just a really unique experience I'll probably never see again in my life, you know, but um, yeah, and working on those lakes, um, all the neat stuff that you see out there, all the, the fish, the fish, the amphibians, the, the, the turtles and, and the alligators. And most of the alligator work we did was looking at uh, population genetics and, and heavy metals accumulation. That's that's really cool stuff. That's that site is incredible. I've never yeah. been, but I've heard so much about it. And I think in the um, the ecology of the slider, they, they did a calculation for how many miles were walked around those drift fences. Yes. And it was easily in the thousands. So to hear about someone who had the perspective of actually going to do that, that's that's incredible. They would just uh, it was really neat. I, mean, I, I helped um, build the first some of the first uh, penning fences for the translocated tortoises when I first got there, that uh, Kurt and Tracy um, uh, did. And yeah, so I mean, that was all, all fun stuff. And the Aiken Gopher Tortoise Preserve, you know, seeing that in the very beginnings, um, early, the early stages of it anyway. Now that, you know, there were like a handful of animals. Now there's over a thousand on that property. So many neat things and all the, you know, things like coral snakes and pine snakes and <clears throat> pygmy rattlesnakes and southern hognose and all the weird albinos things that have, were found on the site while we were there. Yeah, I mean, just it was every day, all the time. It was it was really, really cool. There's always stuff going on. Right. That's that's incredible. So you so you had mentioned kind of you uh, and that that's a cool perspective to have, but. Uh, specifically Sulawesi, that's mm -hmm. one where you've spent a good deal of time uh, and, and specifically working with the Sulawesi forest turtle. Uh, yeah. that, that's a really cool – Jack and I actually got a lot of – well, some experience with those this summer at the Turtle Conservancy. They've got some there, so yeah. we, we got to see a lot of those. But what what's it like – I mean, I guess why are those turtles unique – that there's some cool history behind that, but uh, and also kind of what is it like to to see them in the wild and to work with them? Well, it's all really neat if you love turtles, you know, or if you're into turtles. It's just uh, they were described obviously in 1995. You know, a good friend of mine, Tom Ockrey, um, I, I met him in like 2002 or three, I believe, at SREL. He was coming down to do a postdoc, and we're just talking about stuff and. And he did the measurements for him in John Iverson's driveway in Indiana, you know, uh, for the description of them when he was a, a student you know, of Iverson's, an undergraduate student. So, you know, just some of that neat history of, of the people involved and and how they came to be. And and really, in my mind, it's one of the, if not the kind of like last, like real turtle discoveries. You know, yes, we're describing species all the time, but most of them are based on genetics or little, you know, subpopulations of or, controversial. Yeah, controversial stuff, and you know they, they all look. But this is a really unique turtle in terms of. I mean, no, it's a geomided. I mean, it's similar to other turtles, of course, but it's it's 
in, in five years, it was just uh, its name changed. You know, genus changed three times. It started as Geomida, you won't know why. And, you know, people for many years were thinking, oh, maybe it's more higher elevation. It needs to be kept cool like a Spangler eye, this kind of thing. Um, it turns out not to be the case, of course, um, because there was so much difficulty keeping them alive in the beginning, uh, breeding them, getting the eggs to hatch, all that kind of stuff. Well, it still is hard to get the eggs to hatch. Um, <clears throat> but um, so described in 95, went from Geomida to Heosomies and then to the monotypic genus Leucocephalon. Um, they were, you know, collected by Frank Uono, who they're named after, a, a, a tropical fish dealer in Indonesia who purchased the first specimens in a little town outside, most likely out, outside of the range of the turtle up in northern Sulawesi called Gorontalo. Um, and, uh, and then, of course, Bill McCord and Iverson described them um, through, through market specimens. They first started showing up uh, probably... Um, in the very late 80s or early 90s in, in Chinese markets. And um, and that's how people started getting their hands on them and then tracking them down where these things come from. But then, um, you know, Steve Platt was the first person to see them in the wild. First, I'm sorry, first foreigner. Um, obviously, locals had seen these animals and, of course, and people that I interviewed there that were traders had said that they had been locally trading them um, uh, since the late 70s, at least, you know, <clears throat> but they didn't start, I guess, making it abroad until late 80s or early 90s at best. Um, why, why is it that they went under the radar for so long? I mean, they, they didn't make it into the the global market until the late 80s, I yeah. guess, like you said. But why is it that no one prior to that i mean people all the way back to 16th century were kind of i know that area what i know uh they just didn't go to the right place i guess they were they were in, they weren't traded probably in large numbers at, at all or or at all in some cases and it's probably very minimal because there wasn't a demand really for them I, they don't make good pets at all you know you know in general they're they're nasty turtles in terms of scratching and biting and spraying feces all over you they, you know, they're, they're big tropical, they're aggressive, they're hard to keep alive, they fight, they, they, they're hard to breed, all that stuff. So they, you know, they, and they, apparently they don't taste good. That's anecdotally, that's what I'm told. So they're not, people aren't fond of eating them. Nobody locally eats them that I'm, that I've, I've found. Um, they, they only collect them to, because people come by to buy them the middlemen type people, traders, and send them to, well, it used to be off around the world. Now there's still a huge trade in them within Indonesia for some reason, um, going primarily to the pet markets on the island of Java um, and to the reptile collectors within Indonesia. Uh, you don't see, you see very few actually leaving the country, but there's still hundreds being collected. And I don't understand why, why there's such a demand for them. I, you know, you can kind of understand why there's more you know, there's a demand for Forstens, but um, not really Uanawai. But uh, just a, a really neat turtle. So Steve saw him first, you know, and I read his article and I've been wanting to do it. And 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 this was in 2002. I The first time I saw them actually was in 1998 on my first trip to um, Indonesia. But I saw them. Somebody had one in Bali, um, a female. I have a picture of it. And that was the first one that I ever saw. 
Um, and, uh, but then I was, again, I was in, in Borneo in 2002, uh, trying to work with, uh, Indra Neil Das. And when that didn't work out, you know, I went through, you know, I was hanging out in Sarawak in Malaysia and Borneo, then in Sabah, went down to the Danum Valley. I tried to look for like Dogania and Amboinensis and Emmys and then skipped over, I think illegal. I can't remember how we got over the border into Kalimantan, the Indonesian part of the island. And then I got on a plane and flew over to Sulawesi. And just went there, this was in 2002, internet hadn't been around that long really, and didn't have any connection there at all. And you could go to an internet cafe, but it was like half an hour or more sometimes to send a single email just with the dial up and the slow connections. And so we did that, I did that. and somehow got lucky and found the guy in the town of Palu. I knew they were in central Sulawesi. So I went to Palu and I found the main kind of trader there and was he spent all day at his house. He didn't speak much English. I speak a little bit of Indonesian. And, um, but we spent the day drinking coffee and beer and eating and, and talking. He had turtles at his house. He of course had red eared sliders. He had forestins, he had ambos and he had, um, uh, you want to why and after like eight or ten hours at his house he's like oh you want to go see some in the wild and I want to you yes of course and uh, I'd already been up for like 24 hours at this point so we get in the car and we start going we stop and buy some supplies little did I know and we're driving all the way up the central arm of the peninsula there or of central Sulawesi and 12 hours later we arrive in this little village. Um, we've been delayed by multiple things along the way. It's at night. We get there. And by this time we've been up for like almost, you know, a day and a half or so. And we get there, it's after dark. And then we just start hiking into the forest, we arrive in a village in the middle of remote Sulawesi. And then we start hiking and hiking probably like four kilometers or so before we get to this tiny little stream. And then we start finding turtles. And uh, of course the first one was a, a juvenile that we found probably no more than four inches or so. And that was exciting. And then the next one was a female. And then we found a male and a female together. And I was kind of delirious at this point. And I was just wearing sandals and hiking up these rocky streams. I'd fallen a couple of times. I was getting kind of scratched up. And we're also like seeing like, you know, like snake cobras and other water snakes and, and catching all, you know, all kinds of other little toads and sort of like the Celebesi toad and all kinds of neat stuff like that. And, um, but yeah, I mean, it was super exciting just going on adrenaline, of course. And oh, yeah. uh, for the love of going out and seeing these turtles, you know, taking some water temperatures, taking some, some notes on the habitat and, and, and you know, that kind of thing. So yeah, it was really, really exciting. Um, and uh, they also, these people were collectors. It was still, it was at the very tail end of the, the, the collect, the, the legal collection of them. Um, so they were, they were still being collected um, legally in, in a way. I mean, the, Indonesia has all these laws. So I don't know if they ever really legally collected because it, technically you need a permit just to transfer things from Island to Island um, or a permission to do that. So Regardless, it was in 2002 when they put forth a zero export quota for the species, but obviously they're still oh, they're still being traded. But yeah, that was really a really, you know, really 
momentous time in my life, you know, finding that turtle in the wild and, you know, all it took to get there and, and do it. What do the collectors think about you coming in and asking them to take you out? That, that sort of thing. Is that, how does that go over? Usually quite well. I mean, I've had in Sulawesi, it was, I mean, they, they loved it, you know, I mean, people just like seeing foreigners. I mean, you tend, they tend to, you know, you, you want to bring extra stuff because they want stuff from an, a foreign land, you know, so right, whether yeah. it be t-shirts or books or, you know, I mean, I've gone back like 10 years later and talking to people and they still have like a, a letter that, or something that you gave them or, you know, that they, they, they really like. Um, but yeah, they're always excited to meet people and in, in my travels anyway, they're like, yeah, let's go do it. They might have some other motive for wanting to go out. They work in the forest anyway. They might like in Papua New Guinea, it's, you know, we're going out at night, look, trying to trap turtles, see turtle snake necks and, uh, Emmy Dora and Elsea and but their real prerogative is hunting deer. We got to find deer and hunt the deer, but we'll take you guys out and look for turtles too, you know. Um, so but they're you know, I've never ran into any real issues. Uh, one time on Rhode Island, my, my first trip there in 2004, I believe it was. Yes, 2004. 2004. Um, yeah, it was after the croc meetings in Darwin, Australia. I hopped over to uh, Timor and got over to Rhodey and um, went out. And I we were in this went to this remote village. Now, not, not many people ever went to Rhodey except for you know some Australians to go on one end of the island. There's a surf spot, you know. That's other than that, no one has any reason to go there. Um, we get up into this village, and most of the people there, except for a few of the oldest people in passing had seen foreigners before but no one else had no electricity they were all pretty terrified that um you know i was there they didn't know what was going on why i was there um and you know why someone would be in their village looking for turtle you know this foreigner the six foot tall foreigner um you know looking for turtles it was just really strange to them they thought i was coming to it the chief of the village was not there they thought I was coming to arrest him or something. So I was kind of, I was confined to the, the chief's like hut, his quarters for like, I think it was a day and a half or so before he returned. And, um, and then we sat down and discussed things and, you know, he had a, a, a old typewriter that he would hand, you know, he'd type things out by candlelight. Um, and, uh, like I said, no running water, you know, just kids naked everywhere as soon as they go to the bathroom on the ground and the, the, the dogs that are around the village would just come and eat it right off the ground. As soon as it hit the, as soon as it hit the ground. Um, but, but by the third day I was being, by the third day I was being invited to, I was invited to a birthing ceremony and where I ate um, some, this just kind of congealed kind of, well, I was like blocky soupy um, Buffalo fat that was cold and had this, uh, it, you know, flies all over it and it was hard to stomach, but I, I managed to get a little bit of it down, you know, but not what I normally like to eat. And, and all the betel nut, the, um, they, the, the betel nut, oh. they put their lip and they're just everything. There's the red spit that's everywhere. And I, you know, I sat in the hut one night with, the, with every, with all the, right. the elder villagers and they, they passed around the little thing to, to you put the lot, you mix the lime and the betel nut together. And yeah, it just burns the hell out of your, out of your yeah. lip and your gum. But, yeah, and, and of course, going out and looking for snake neck turtles. 
So you were looking for the 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 Rhode Island snake next there. Yeah. That, yeah. that was sort of a that's got another kind of unique story in terms of the exploitation and such. What did you end up finding them there, or what's yeah. supposedly? I have the distinction of seeing the last three um, Caledina macordi ever in the wild. No one else has found one since. Um, there were, I, we saw three when I was there, and. Um, and again, uh, they tell the people that worked in Indonesia. I gave a talk at the TSA meeting a few years ago I, about Rhode Island, and I had, or I was more about breeding uh, the snake necks here. Um, but I put in some photos of my travels there and showed the pictures of those three animals that were, we, I saw when I was there. And um, an Indonesian biologist, um, I can't remember his name right now off the top of my head, unfortunately, but he, um, he came up to me afterwards and said, those were the last three that anyone that, we, that we've been able to, anyone's known about, you know, those are the last ones. And so that was in 2004, but yeah, they were, you know, not described, they were described in 94. What's funny is, you know, they were being bred in captivity a long time before they were described. They were always exported as New Guinea snake neck turtles, but turtle keepers, aficionados, could see that this is not a new, this is a different animal. This isn't a New Guinea snake neck turtle. If I mean, there, still to this day, there aren't many people that know the difference between, you know, the different snake necks, uh, unless they're, you know, have special features to them, characteristics. Um, and, uh, and so they were being exported uh, as fish because that's what, that's all they were. That's how what turtles were categorized as in Indonesia for a long, long time until, I don't know, maybe, 15 or 20 years ago, uh, not even, I think less than that. Anyway, uh, so they were being exported as fish, a little bit for the pet trade. Uh, you know, they're going to Japan, China, US, Europe. And, but they just have, it's such a, it's such a small island. It's a tiny little island and there's only so much fresh water. There's seasonal lakes up in a plateau region. There's the, and the Eastern end, all the bigger lakes, um, you know, that the Brian and, and WCS and everyone are working on for the reintroduction and Brian Horn, I'm sure you know who, who that is. And uh, <laughs> I know you know who that is. And, um, and, uh, and then, and the Eastern end of the Island, there are, you know, uh, some streams and some impoundment areas where they are said to occur. People there, all the people that I talked to there when I was there in the early 2000s, so they don't really care for them. But in general, people are taught that that reptiles are nasty, horrible things and to kill it on sight. In fact, one of the turtles that I saw had old machete wounds on it, like deep cut machete wounds on it that were healed up. Um, one, of, one of them did. One was a juvenile and, and, and two adult females. And um, But it was really, really interesting. And, um, and I met one of the guys who had collected a lot of them and he, I stayed at his house and he had actually typed up he had, he had, over the years. He had hand typed all the turtles that he had sold and how much for going back to like the early nineties. And, you know, in the early days he was selling them to the, the collect the, 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 the person who's taking them off Island and selling them to whatever market um, <clears throat> he was getting paid, I don't know, 50 cents or a dollar or, or a couple dollars and it goes up to five dollars you know and then by the early 2000s if you could even find one you were getting you know several hundred dollars 
for it uh, 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 from the collector's end. But uh, and then but that but but then they were all gone and so they were described in '94. Okay, here's a new species. Even though we already have it and people are breeding them, uh, then there was this mad you know of course drive and in five years the rest of them are gone. But it was rather easy to collect them out. Uh, we know that there's the snakeheads that are probably eating all the babies. Um, but the adults in the seasonal wetlands they estivate. You know these wetlands dry out. It's just like here and chicken turtles in a way. Um, they, they're estivating, they're buried uh, on the edges, and when the rains come back and fill the pools, they, they, they go back into the water. So you just go around, along with a probe, you know, in the dry season and find them. Right, their ecologies sort of make it not in their favor when humans get involved. And yeah. that, I, I, there was a traffic report that came out a while back that I, I remember reading through. And it was saying some of these guys in the mid-80s period were in the course of two to three days could pull out 300 plus and just decimate the population in, in a sure. decade or so. Yeah. Was, yeah. Know, that's yeah. Um, in 19, probably up until like, yeah, 85, 90, around 90, there are probably still a lot left, you know, that, that you could probably go out in those lakes and they're filled with them, but, um, or at least, you know, relatively filled with them. And now right, yeah. they're all gone. There are, and there are a lot in captivity now too. But what do you think about kind of the having them in captivity? But if they're no longer in the wild, sort of what is it? Is that a benefit or what is the benefit to captive assurance colonies? I guess. Well, it's the idea that it's a bank. You know, it's a living genetic bank of of these of these species. So, like right now, as we speak. It, the reintroduction process is is underway. Um, animals have been already been sent from the U.S. to Singapore, and there is a facility on Timor. They they've identified a lake that they they want to protect. I mean, they're still the they, they got to raise them up so they don't fit in the fish of the mouths 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 of the fish. Um, and uh, but yeah, I mean I, they're on the verge of putting them back out into the wild um, from captive bred animals. So. Hopefully that's a successful project, like other projects that we've seen, such as the um, Burmese star tortoise. Uh, it's obviously a completely different situation and animal altogether, but um, uh, still something that would, wouldn't it be great to see 5,000, even 1,000 uh, Macordi back out in the wild on, on Rhode Island. I mean, that would be great. Um, and, and, and stop the collection, uh, educate the, the locals, have someone there that's, that's working on them, that's champion for it, being a champion for them. And, and uh, yeah, we're trying to, we're trying to drive ourselves out of business here, man. We don't, we don't want to have to keep all right. you know, populations, these yeah. turtles. We want, I want to be able to go, I want to go to Rhode Island. I want to go to Vietnam and see these turtles. Like we, we go and see turtles here, you know, but that's just my, my selfish take on life. You know, I want to be able to see turtles and crocodiles in the wild. Um, we want them in the wild. And, uh, and, but that is the whole point of the assurance colonies, you know, to have those options, creating, you know, preserving these options for the future. And it's, you know, it's difficult because, you know, some of them may never get back in the wild. And so it may take a hundred years. It may take 500 years, or it may take five or 10 years, but it also depends on culture and, what human, you know, what society as a whole, as a global society 
what happens because it's not, you know, obviously it's not looking that great, <laughs> but it hasn't been for a long time. So we, we have, we have little, little wins here and there, but overall, you know, we're still seeing this great decline of all biodiversity and life in general, other than humans and mosquitoes and cockroaches and red-eared sliders. <laughs> yeah. It's classic. Oh, no, you're going. Yeah, go ahead. No, no. So I was going to why in your experience, why are the traders so good at finding whatever they're looking for? Like just anywhere, like in Southeast Asia, that like way better than the biologists seem to be able to find them. And just, just insane numbers of species that should be the farm. Yeah. Like what is going on? Well, I would I'd say particularly for the most part, it's familiar it's familiarity it's it's you come here you want to go see uh river cooters you want to see spotted turtles you want to catch a snapping turtle i'll take you and do it. We'll, we'll go do it you know and most likely we'll be successful um but you know these people live there this is their home they're hunting i mean they they, they grew up in these forests they and a lot of them have lived off of these forests they know where everything is you know it's uh uh, they know how it's it's just being familiar with your environment i think and and people that are professionals just like professional hunters that live anywhere right here right here they know how to track things they know how to find things they they learn about the animals natural history and ecology uh, at whatever level level that is you know uh to to know the animals behaviors and where to find them and uh, I, I think that's what it is like I think if you went and flew to whatever country and spent five years there just just doing that, yeah, you would know where to find it all. <laughs> I think that's what it just really what it really boils down to. And you know, as foreigners, we drop in, we fly in somewhere. Like, oh, I want to see these turtles. You know, it's like you know, someone flow or you come here and start walking through people's yards in South Carolina looking for spotted turtles, you're going to get shot. You know, but. Mm -hmm. uh, but but it's a kind of the same way there. You're walking through people's fields, their agricultural fields. You, you know, you, you have to find people that generally, unless you're, you know, you know, they have things set up differently. But usually, these these areas where these turtles are found are, are somebody's property, and uh, they're managing it in, in, in some way. And uh, you need permission to to go on their property and do this stuff. So you enlist their help. Yeah, it, it's. It's interesting to see, too, in different areas, how different senses kind of get developed. Uh, I spent some time in Belize this summer and at the be, at the be free station out there. And uh, a lot of the, the folks that work there just are so in tune with that environment that me coming from the United States, just a lot of my senses are, are attuned to different things. Like we were walking through the 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 bush or I, I guess the jungle there and um we, we're all of a sudden it was tom who was in front of me and all of a sudden you hear it i i didn't hear anything and he turns around he said stop and he points up about 200 feet and shines a flashlight and the eyes of a kinkajou were up in the on, on a branch mm -hmm. and I, i'm just thinking that's incredible. I had no, I would have no idea that that was there. And he said that he heard a twig snap and knew that it came from uh, just that sort of, that development of that sort of sense is not something it's location specific. And I'm sure it's very different in Asia than it in even just in Indonesia than it is in different areas. So yeah, in, in tune with those things. Right? Yes, I, I agree. 
They, yeah. They, well, and uh, so another one that is kind of cool talking about the travel. So I guess this is, that's sort of the theme is all these different travels. Mm -hmm. We haven't really spoken much about this, but was the Palawan crisis in uh, 2015. I, I remember I was a lot younger, but it, it doesn't even, it, for me, it doesn't even feel like that long ago. Uh, but th this was something cool to see. And I, I think you were there. So what was that experience like it, when you initially heard about this, what was kind of going through your head? And Well, I heard about it when I initially heard about it. I was just like, you know, holy shit, that's a lot of latensis, you know, I mean, I mean, just the numbers were staggering. I mean, that, that's the, the first thing that comes to mind, obviously. And, and, and just a shame, you know, all these animals piled up over, you know, a six month period of time in the cement bunker you know, a turtle that until uh, 14 years prior to that, we, we knew we did, we knew from four specimens. We had no idea where it really came from. It was just this, this mystery turtle. What is this thing? Where does it come from? And, uh, and then all of a sudden there, there they are. And, you know, in the, in, and of course they, well, they're rediscovered or they were discovered or where they came from in what, 2001, I believe, or two, one, I think it was, and um, and found, of course, in a restaurant in Puerto Princesa, the main town of Palo Palawan, and um, <clears throat> and then they found it, you know, on the island, uh, and and then during that time, you know, it was all kind of kept under wraps and pretty secretive. But you know, during that time, that all these animals collected, and, he, and as soon as they were kind of rediscovered, they start showing up in uh, in Japan and China, Europe, the U.S., you know. And luckily not tons of them, but that would, you saw that you know, if those turtles would have made it off Island, uh, most of them would have died, of course, but um, you know, it's like 3000 or whatever it was, 4,000 turtles, you know, pumped into the, the, the trade. And, you know, a lot of them would go into chi Chinese turtle farms. I'm trying to breed them and just putting them out in turtle ponds and a lot of them dying or most of them dying. Um, someone just actually sent me, well, Clint, uh, I think through Steve Platt, found sent him a picture of one that was found in singapore and we just identifying yeah, that's a latensis yeah just just this past week that it was something in the wild just that was released yeah i believe so. i don't I actually don't know the story if it was found if someone had it or if it was found or i don't know the backstory on it. i just know it was in singapore and uh steve platt sent the photo asking for verification of id is it is the well? I guess we probably don't know, but do you know if the trade, what the latest is with the, the trade of the forest turtles? Is the it this? I don't. I yeah. mean, there's there's not there's no legal trade at all. All the trade that right. has come out have been laundered animals through like some of the zoos in 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 the Philippines, saying they're captive bred. Uh, but you know they might be captive. They're not. There's hatchlings picked up, and they say that they're captive bred, and they send them to Hong Kong or China or Japan or whatever and or wherever. So there's not any legal trade at all. You know they shouldn't be leaving that island. Just like Geomaya japonica, they've been protected since like '74 in that country or, or earlier than that. Every single one of them left that country illegally. Um, right. Right. Even though there's paper, there are, there's paperwork for about 30 of them, import paperwork in the U.S. 
uh, with U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service, but that's it. And I would say there's more like 150 or 200 that have probably come in over the past couple of decades. Yeah, the enforcement on the exporting countryside too, imagine that, that matters a lot. And that that's sort of lacking in a lot of these areas. I think a lot of that, I mean, I, I don't know what your take on this is, but I, I imagine a lot of that's just due to sort of top-down issues. If there's not really a government that, that is cohesive from the, the top sort of down, you have a lot of these issues fall through the cracks. And conservation a lot of times. Oh, go ahead. Sorry. It, uh, it's conservation kind of comes later on in terms of other issues. Yeah. So oh, yeah. little gets devoted to it. And there's just lots of corruption too and, and bribery and like, yeah, most people, like who can't, most people don't care about turtles. It's not, not on the forefront of their mind. I mean, if you think about it, I mean, how many people in the world are as devoted to turtles as people like us are? Very, very few, unfortunately. Uh, like everyone likes turtles. Everyone has a turtle story. Everyone's like, oh, turtles are cool. A lot of people say, oh, I'm devoted to turtles. I love turtles, but no one really does anything about it. They don't really know anything about turtles. They don't go out and advocate for turtles. They just love turtles because turtles are cool, but that's about it. They're not going to intentionally hurt them, but um, they're also not going to necessarily do anything about it either. But yeah, the, the, I mean, Palo, I mean, that was a, I, I've gone there before. I went there in 2012. I was in the Philippines for the croc meetings um, in Manila. And I took a side trip and met up with Sabine and went out. And uh, I, I think was one of the first out, foreigners, outsiders, you know, to get that they took out into the field. And I got to see them in the wild. We caught a whole bunch one night and, you know, collected data on them and, uh, it was just wonderful, you know. It was like one of the greatest things in the world, like a truly nocturnal turtle, you know. And sitting, she has a few at home too. And you just say we're just like sitting out on her porch and you know having a drink. And and as soon as the sun goes down, you hear plop, you hear them plopping in the water. They're in their little their little hides during the day, and they plop down in the water. And these turtles that live in these streams, and they make these burrows into the bank, you know. And they like communally go into these like side burrows. I mean, they're just such a neat little turtle. Yeah, that's yeah. Go ahead, Jack. Something a little off topic. You can. Well, I I was um, sort of curious, just the adventure aspect. Um, what's been your most exhilarating experience in the field? Most exhilarating? Oh, geez, wow. Hmm. Yeah, that <laughs> that one might take a second, but I mean, um, there's I mean, there's so many, I assume, but I mean, <laughs> that sort of comes with the the traveling biologist territory, I guess. The, yeah, there's, a, yeah. there's exhilarating where like where well, there's like near death exhilarating experiences. There's like you know dodging abductions, you know, kind of uh, exhilarating. There's. <laughs> Uh, in East Timor, the first time I went to East Timor in 2004, I think it was. Um, and uh, there, no, it was 2002, I believe. Well, whatever. It was early 2000s. I have to look it up. I can't remember. I get some dates mixed up sometimes. I'm usually pretty good. But I think it's 2000, I want to say 2003 or four. I mean. Um, anyway, um, it's not long out. I mean, they, they were at war, you know. I mean, they were still, you know. UNICEF tents everywhere, people living in tents. There was, was everything was a mess, you know. And while I was there, um, got trapped under gunfire. I mean, a little some skirmish, some stuff broke out and gunfire going on. And 
And so the airport was closed down. I couldn't get out for a few days. Um, and it was basically just like holed up in my, in the hotel where I was in Dilly uh, until things cooled down a little bit. That's, uh, that's uh, pretty scary. It's similar almost. It, it's like a higher order um, issue that when we were talking, to, I think it was John Can on one of the past episodes. He was saying how he got caught in arrow fire. They, they the in yeah. New Guinea, they they were running down a hill all of a sudden and shooting arrows over the head. But the, yeah, that's that's a little bit. I don't know. Both situations are a little bit nerve wracking. But uh, New Guinea is kind of nerve wracking just because you're always stuck in the mud. You know, we we're trying to. I was in 2006 on an expedition for a few weeks going up along the Irian Jaya PNG border. And we we're looking for, you know, Alceas and, and, and Rymanai type uh, snake necks. And, um, and we're just, you're just always stuck in the mud, you know, and breaking down and just like, but as you're stuck and you know, I start walking around in the jungle and, you know, I'm seeing like death adders and monitor lizards and, and amnestine pythons and you know all kinds of you know cool stuff like that but at the same time you're just kind of stuck in the middle of Papua New Guinea in the jungle and it's raining all the time and and muddy as hell and and uh and we we picked up I remember that that particular trip we picked up a woman and her son who was dying from malaria and we're trying to get him to town which is really only about 60 miles away but it took us three days to get through those 60 miles in a in a you know, four-wheel drive vehicle, um, just being constantly stuck and other people being stuck too. There'd be log or jams, jam ups of, of trucks and vehicles and mud, you know, like 15, 20 feet high and every just hundreds of people, you know, building things to like get these cars and, and, and things through. It was just, and you'd be there all day dealing with that or half the day, um, often. And so, um, yeah, and then picking things. Somehow I've never really gotten sick when everyone else around me gets malaria and dengue and food poisoning and giardia. And my friend with me on that on that New Guinea trip, he's an ornithologist and he just wanted to tag along. And God, he was just so sick the whole time with giardia. We're just like sleeping in the woods and getting chewed up by so many different kinds of insects, you know, just bloodied and welts everywhere. Yeah, it's sometimes it's not all that pleasant. Yeah, that's uh, people. Yeah, that's the part of it that the 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 exploration is fun, but there's always. Well, I mean, I guess the, a lot of times the sickness is the issue. I that that's really lucky if that's not a problem that you have. If you've got a pretty. Uh, yeah, but when it catch, when it catches up with me, it's probably not going to be good because I've somehow dodged it, and I don't take any. I've never taken any anti-malarias or or vaccines for that for specific trips or anything. I've just gone in and somehow not died each time. And I, I probably have parasites. You know, that's probably, that's probably some worms rolling around in me. But other than that, I've been I've been okay so far. The only place right. I've been was Ecuador and the Galapagos, so that's relatively tame compared to some of the places Michael's been and what you're talking about. So all these horror stories, it's like I'm just just to get prepared for when I when I finally do start traveling to some of them. The most dangerous country I've ever been to is the United States of America. I mean, I've been held up at gunpoint multiple times <laughs> in this country. You know, it's 
you know, I've never, I've never, you know, really felt like I was about to die other than in this country. Jeez. Well, on airplanes a few times, uh, when in severe turbulence dropping out of the sky, I've, I've had some rough ones with that too. The question yeah, about the, the Dogania, you said you were finding them in the Danube Valley. What is it like to look for that species? Like going up in the, uh, just going up in streams. I guess it was in Sabah. I was in, in the Danum Valley. We were, I mean, I think they are there. I got, I don't know if they're, I'm not sure if the range goes all the way down there, but I was, we were looking for Minoria there. Didn't find any, unfortunately. Um, did see uh, Asian elephants though in, in Borneo. Um, and, uh, but no, hiking up streams in the mountains and they're just in these little, you know, little streams, these little hill streams. Um, yeah, they're, 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 well, you know, I actually did not find any myself personally, but other people that we were with did. Um, so, but it was, you know, it's, it's always the experience hiking yeah. through the jungle. Um, Borneo is a neat place. I tell you, I was like, I mean, ever since I was a kid, you know, just growing up, just, just thinking about, I've always been fascinated by that Malay Indo, you know, archipelago and the biodiversity throughout that place. And I also the Amazon and the Congo basin too. I mean, just those big giant tropical belts have always interested me, but, um, Indonesia, Malaysia has been, been the one that I've always really been interested. I think, I think it's also because of the cultures there, you know, the, the hundreds and hundreds of languages that are spoke, the, 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 the cannibalism, the, the head hunting, you know, all that cool stuff. Just watching yeah, those old documentaries from the 60s and 70s of yeah. going in there just always fascinated me. It's exciting. It's definitely a, a foreign, uh, yeah, sort of being here and just, it's hard to, actually being in a place is very different than imagining it you you get to sense so much more and it, it's uh to some extent i mean the, the turtles are obviously sort of the, the motivation but there's also some level of it satisfies that that want for adventure i feel like that's also an interest a lot of us have um discovery and being a 17th century explorer i mean yeah. that that would have been awesome i mean that's what i, I mean, that's kind of just fulfilling that kind of desire as that's you know i started doing that in my 20s you know and actually going and doing it. i always wanted to do it and i finally did it and i still do it to this day as much as possible right and i mean that that sort of thing was only a matter of a few hundred years ago and and it seems from our perspective now a lot of the it seems we've learned so much that there is still it will be a 17th century explorer to someone and 400 yeah. years so it's it's um it's sort of perspective based but yeah. I mean, just in the past it. 20 to 30 years think about all we've learned about turtles i mean 20 to 30 years ago we knew virtually nothing about a lot of these species when i was a teenager there were 275 species of turtles now they're 350 to 60 you know and and again as we've discussed a lot of that's based on genetics and and little stuff but still um it, it's a lot we've just learned so much more about a lot of these species and then there are some we still know absolutely nothing about of course a lot of them really unfortunately right uh, even the, the two we spoke most about today the Rhode island snake deck and the forest turtles that's a perfect example didn't even know that they existed in, in that yeah. period of time but yeah uh, yeah 
we can start sort of, I mean, we can shift focus a little, I think, maybe to um, the Turtle Survival Center and kind of the stuff on the captive okay. front there yeah. um, and sort of wrap up with that. But I, okay. I'm, I'm sort of curious, what are the things, I guess in the, the past, I think a lot of listeners are follow a lot of the stuff that happens at the TSC, sort of naturally being involved. But what are some of the highlights uh in the history of the center, I guess, in terms of breeding and, and other sort of groundbreaking things. And then also what are some upcoming projects that, that you're sort of interested in, in tackling? Well, I guess I think the exciting, most exciting thing is just how quickly we were able to um, kind of get this off the ground and, and get an animals, you know, the success of the of breeding with a lot of, a lot of the species here. I mean, Every species that we keep here, we breed. Other than the exception is um, that we have adult, at least pairs of. The only exception being Heosomies depressa. We have never uh, had, in fact, this the last year, 2022, was the first year that we got eggs um, from from the pair that we have here. Um, but other, you know, we the success of breeding, you know, we've hatched over 800, you know, turtles now, endangered and critically endangered turtles. Um, in the past 10 years, which you know, doesn't sound like a whole lot, except when you consider most of these turtles lay one or two or three eggs at a time. And usually one time you get one chance a year, you have, you know, low, low fertility with some of these species, um, for whatever reason. Um, you know, a lot of these animals have been through a lot of the, the animals, the adult animal breeding animals here at the TSC, a lot of them are old refugees from the pet the old pet trade you know they've been in this country for 20 30 plus years um they've been around for a long time some of them are old old and geriatric and and uh uh and most of them are at least 30 or 40 you know because most of them have been around at least since um 2000 um and, and a lot of them sooner or earlier than that so um, the fact that, you know, we have these nice little populations here, they're, they're, they've really settled in, they're acclimated, they're breeding, um, we're, you know, constantly having, you know, building, ca catching up to build new enclosures for them, of course, and um, for offspring as they grow up, we're successful, we're raising offspring, we just finished a building for juvenile rearing, we can now manage, you know, a few hundred juveniles um, as we're raising them. But then they're going to become adults. We're going to have these adult F1 and F2 populations. And we need to build outdoor enclosures for all of them, too. Not all of them, but a certain number of them to meet our, our um, population goals, um, to maintain a 95% plus genetic diversity over 100 or more years. Um, of course, you know, with some species, there are very few individuals left. And you just have to work with what you have and um, hope for the best. Um, for, you know, for the future, there's, uh, you know, we have this, this training course, this, you know, we, we hope to be fostering the next generation of, of turtle conservation biologists. Um, you know, a lot of people are getting older, you know, there's, there doesn't seem to be, there's, there are young people around, of course, like yourselves, but, um, that are interested in this stuff, but by and large, they're, they're, there aren't a lot to it and, and and more to focus on turtle i mean there are lots of people studying turtles but very very few people are studying turtles of the world they're really into global turtle diversity you know a lot of people i mean 
hundreds of thousands, tens of thousands of people probably, you know, are doing their master's degree, their PhD, they're studying one species or one aspect of one species or the turtle species is just part of their, uh, you know, not their, 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 their main focus of their project. Um, or they're studying a, a, a region, you know, but like I said, I mean, the global, the, you know, the Peter Pritchards, the, the Peter Paul Van Dykes, you know, the, the, uh, you know, the people that are like really, you know, looking all over the world, Peter Proshog, you know, I mean, you know, they, there's not many people around that can sit around and have a conversation about, you know, most species of turtles in the world. Right. Yeah. It's, it, it does seem like a lot of people, even in our experience interviewing for people for the, the, the podcast, it is pr pretty specific. Mm -hmm. Uh, just kind of the expertise is, mm -hmm. but, um, yeah, that, that's an interesting perspective to have working with so many things. And I imagine you have to deal with a lot of sort of issues and other things are there is there anything that has been that was sort of an issue and has been overcome that was kind of a highlight i guess and 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 i will say just backing up real quickly one other uh you know as far as breeding like everything we have here we're breeding I, I, there was one i forgot about that we're not that we hope to be as the um uh our only u.s species the flattened musk turtle we have the only pair in the aza we have been working for the past few years trying to develop a, an assurance colony program with the state of Alabama, with the federal government to have that assurance colony um, with, with individuals that can be plucked out of the out of the trade or the, the remaining individuals that are in, you know, little little creeks here and there that there might only be one or two or three individuals left in. Anyway, we're trying to form, you know, a program for that, build a facility specific for that species. Um, but right now we're just, you know, we're working on, we're trying to breathe. And we just, this will be our first full year of having this pair here. So hopefully this spring we will have, or this summer we'll have eggs cooking. Um, but uh, uh, so that that's one one other big kind of for, for husbandry projects in the future, you know, that we're, we're looking at happening. Um, back to your, 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 your newest question. Um, um, I'm sorry, we, we please repeat it. Oh, yeah, just in terms of, uh, I guess for people the keeping turtles, it might be interesting to, there's a lot of, turtles are pretty hardy in a lot of ways, but they're oh. also prone to different issues. If there's something that you found that works really well for fixing some specific issue. Oh, I think the, 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 the reality of that is when you have hundreds of animals, um, you're going to, there's always going to be something you got to deal with, you know, right. injuries, pathogens i mean no place is sterile there's really no such thing as pure biosecurity you know um when you're keeping wildlife um and and where we live in, a, in a, we're trying to provide these animals with a a semi-natural environment outdoors those that can that are temperate species and can live outdoors year-round and and so you're exposed to things and and so you're always having to keep up with uh, you know, disease testing, really monitoring animals. Um, um, but, you know, a lot of these animals are established and they're settled and they're acclimated and you keep them under optimal conditions. You know, they, they tend to do quite well. But yeah, you're, you're always going to have little things and you'll never be able to fully overcome, you know, parasites and viruses. And it's, it's there, you know, it's in the environment. It's in animals have it. 
even if you kept them in lines of 10 gallon aquariums and on newspaper, you know, and nothing else, you're still going to have stuff happen, you know, and then they're going to be living a much more miserable existence uh, than being outdoors and, and, and having a pool to run around in. I think we've all been to the, the, the TSC too. And like the, the standard that you guys have with it is incredible. I mean, the, the enclosures are uh, just in terms of mimicking the natural environment, I think it's as close as you can get. I mean, it, you would know that more than anyone, how, how close those things match and, and kind of the work that you do in the detail that, right? Yeah. yeah. Well, when you're, when you're talking about a, a three by six foot area or so, you know, it, there's only so much you can do. I mean, it'd be nice to build a, a, a giant flowing stream for each individual, you know, that's 20 feet long and, you know, all the, for things for, for, you know, stream dwelling species, but, you know, you try to move the water, you try to aerate water, you, you, you try to push water around. Um, so, so you get that kind of stream um, feeling, you know, when you're in the water and uh, you do the best that you can, you know, and, and there are obviously limited resources. That's why we focus on the species that we focus on. We, we try to pick ones that or we we definitely pick ones that are that are in need of captive management that, you know, not everyone. There's not really successful programs for other places, um, you know, because there are such limited resources. You know, why duplicate efforts um, and, and not in, in sharing this? I mean, the TSA has always been built on partnerships. Obviously, you can't no one can do all this stuff on their own. It's 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 everyone working together um, and, and, and piecing it together. So there's this greater collective um, force that's, that's, that's um, trying to keep these things from going extinct. Yeah, that's well said, I think. Um, and uh, so I, I guess we can sort of wrap the, wrap it up. I've got one particular question too. I was pretty curious with, because okay. this is one of the, one of the things that floats a lot around online and that, this sort of thing, uh, I don't know, most of us aren't keeping many turtles now, but we have in the past, but with shell rot, sometimes that's something that people see a lot. And there are a lot of alternative ways to f that people claim works to fix it. I'm curious what, what works best in your experience, like what sort of treatment regime? Yeah, I think it depends on the species and how bad it is. And, um, what is causing it? Is it fungal? Is it bacterial? Is it both? Um, so a lot of times, you know, just debriding the area, you know, getting all the, the, the active kind of like cheesy um, material, abscess material out, cleaning it real well, keeping it dry, um, keeping it clean, um, putting topicals on it, um, whether that be, you know, ceftazidime or, or I'm, I'm sorry, um, silver sulfite um, and salt, salt baths work really good uh, for a lot of species and helping with that. Um, it, it, it really depends on, on a lot of different things and, and it's a battle of course. And, and certain species are much more susceptible to water quality and, and shell disease than, than others. And um, some are chronic. So there's, you'll find individuals that, get it time and time again, no matter seemingly what you do for them and they heal up and they do fine. They're fine for six months, a year, two years, and, and it comes back again someplace else. And if it's one of those 
occasionally it's hidden. You don't see it. It's under the scoot and you don't notice it. And it's gotten, sometimes it gets, it's becomes really extensive and, um, and really deep. And, it, and then you're in, in, a, in a real battle there when you, when you find them, um, like that. And sometimes yeah, you put them under a CT scan or an x-ray and they're basically Swiss cheese, but you look at it from the outside and you don't see that it's all covered up by their, their scoots. Um, so yeah, I mean, I don't, I, there isn't like any one, one thing. You just have to tackle each one case by case as it comes along. Some of it, sometimes it's real easy. It's a matter of some salt baths, you know, some betadine scrubs, uh, keeping them dry and let it heal up and then, uh, get them back out. Yeah. You know, being outside is, is a really good thing. UV, as we all know, UV radiation, um, helps out with a, a lot of this stuff. If they can get dry out and bask and get heated up. Which of those species are super prone to, to developing it extensively, like under the scoots? Is that like mostly uh, Cora? Seen, seen it with some Cora. I actually currently have a Pelusios gabonensis at home that has had that happen a few weeks ago that I'm treating at home. Um, uh, snail eating turtles are really prone to it. Cicale are prone to a lot of shell disease. Um, uh, Graptomies, another one. Uh, what else? I mean, that's off the top of my head. One thing I'm sure there are other soft shell turtles. Actually, a lot of them, you know, end up with shell disease if they're not in, in, in good quality conditions. Soft shells are strange too, because it seems like, at least in California, with the spiny soft shells that have been introduced, you'll find them in some of the nastiest water mm -hmm. that humans wouldn't even dare go yeah, into. Yeah. So it seems like, yeah, that's a that's another interesting. Well, turtles one. seem to like, I was going to say, uh, dirty water, but murky water. I mean, they, you know, a lot of them do. Right. All right. Well, we I think uh, we've uh, covered a lot of things, and we can start to wrap up here. I. So this is our first time back in a while, but um, I forgot to mention to you, but we like to at the end of the show do a little trivia okay. section thing where um, I, we can do it multiple ways. You could just ask us a series of turtle questions or we could do a volley back and forth. We could hit you with some and you could hit us with some. Or uh, Normally I like to tell people in advance, yeah. but I forgot. Uh, and. Yeah just so you can come up with something, but I don't know if you've got stuff on top of your head. Let's, let's see. Yes. Yeah. I can uh, shoot. Yeah. I can shoot a couple back and forth. Um, um, let's see. The, <laughs> let's see. How about, uh, what is the only documented endemic turtle to Papua New Guinea? That's a good. I'm, I, yeah, I'm still thinking on that one. No, don't look at your phones. No, are <laughs> you? Well, okay, so we're not. Irian Jaya doesn't count, or no, no, I'm talking about the country of Papua New Guinea. Just Papua New Guinea. Okay. Yeah. Not New Guinea, not the island New Guinea, but Papua New Guinea. Right, right. I've got an idea, but uh, yeah, I can think of one that is objectively works okay uh, Keladina Pritchard eye that's it you got it 
I have a different yep. one in mind. That's right. I that I was just kind of thinking about it, but that that's a great question actually, because there's so many things that you think, oh yeah, and then the border kind of gets in the way. Yeah. That. Uh, now, it, yeah, that, someday when extensive work is actually done on that entire island, I'm, I would assume there'll be others. I mean, there there's there's a lot to still discover on that island. I think. Right, and and even the Pritchard eyes not well known. No, not at all. So, not at all. No, there's yeah. only one in this country that that I'm aware of. I've se- I've actually seen them in person. It's one of my holy grails to go see in the wild. Right, right. That's yeah. That whole that whole area of sort of western or eastern New Guinea. That that's mm-hmm. uh, that's really an interesting area. Yeah. All right. If you've got another one, or we could we could uh, throw in your way, or if you want to just do us, it works. Well, yeah, ask me one, see if I can get one. All right, all right. Uh, okay, I, I was thinking of one, but if you guys, Jason, Jack, you got something first, we could save mine for a, later. It's – I'll let you go first. Question, but, or no, Jason, you, go ahead. Jason, you go. Oh, a bit of a primate question, Turtle. What's the common name for the genus Propithecus? The genus what? I'm sorry. You, you broke out. Uh, propi- Propithecus. Propithecus. Yeah, it's a primate genus. The common name they they call. Oh, geez. We've gone outside the range of turtles, but I guess this works. Yeah, I'm doing, gee, I mean, the best time, maybe proboscis monkeys. Uh, there's I don't know. Sifakas. <laughs> They're what? They're called sifakas. So you're okay, well, yeah, 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 you're, yeah, you got me on that one. Yeah, you're, you're going out of my realm there. <laughs> I thought you knew the criteria, Jason. We stay, we stick with turtles, but I, yeah, that works. That, that's Man, funny. Yeah, I'm, I'm taking a primate ecology and conservation course. That's, uh, you know, kind of what my mind's been here the last. Well, couple it's all years. fresh on your mind, then. Yeah, and, and then in ten years, it'll all float away. Unfortunately. <laughs> Yeah. All right, uh, Chris. If you want to hit us with another one, well, we can do one more little round. I got, I got one more. Okay. Uh, okay. Yes. If you want to hit us with one first, unless. No, go ahead. Go ahead. Right. Go. Uh, yeah, go. This is like a turtles of the world question, so not including sea turtles, which and this includes like subspecies. Uh, which turtle has the smallest range of anything? Any turtle, and then which one has the broadest, not oh, including sea turtles? No. Um, the broadest range, I would think, would be Cora amboinensis. I think. If, I mean, they're going to be split into multiple species sometime soon, so that will uh, take that away. But I mean, they occur from India to Timor. I don't know that anything else that has that big of a range. Um, and then the smallest range turtle, holy cow. And you're talking about subspecies too, right? Well, uh, yeah. Because yeah. there's a subspecies. Well, technically, it's, of- technically, it's a species. So if we're not we're not including subspecies, it's, it's still. Oh, okay. Okay. I was going to say, I know there's a subspecies of Emmys orbicularis that just occurs in like one, one tiny place. Um, and we're talking about. What's I'm well wait I'm curious I I wanted to find something here what's the is it historic like what's the bound on range is it no, current like currently or? occupied like 
currently have inside kilometers, like in square Holy kilometers, crap. like total landmass occupied. Sorry, this probably shouldn't have. It's a little complex. Yeah. I think I should have asked. So, probably, I'm thinking. I'm uh, I'm thinking one of the potentially one of the South African tortoises, like maybe the geometric tortoise or the um, that what's that one padloper called? I'm not thinking of the hamopus. I think it's one of them, but I, I don't know for sure. You might have got me on that one. I don't for know. The, I I was. It was from. I recently read the. It was the IUCN Turtles of the World book, so they had all these statistics in there. Yeah, and I was I was surprised by both of the answers. Apparently, the scorpion mud turtle has the broadest uh, range. Okay. Of any, of any turtle besides a sea turtle, it's like seven point four million, and the smallest okay. uh, was the Duncan Island tortoise from the Galapagos. Although, oh, right. of course, Galapagos. It, it only occurs on. Yes, and that one that one's kind of tricky though because of the those tech the yeah the guess that, right so that was right. kind of that's what can that's why I was like oh shoot I should have specified uh but uh, yeah okay I'm surprised about kind of I'm surprised the Scorpioides has a larger range than Amboinensis but I think it's because of the maybe it's the land occupied and not okay. necessarily this maybe if it was just like the space like the distance from uh including like non-occupied area probably yeah. more consistent i mean they're huge range okay. yes <laughs> all right okay um all right we can do one more here i guess <laughs> i'll give you guys one I, i'll give you guys one right how about um how about well as far as we know what what's how many species can you name that have as far as we know, never been seen by a biologist, a, a turtle person, other than obviously the local people. Um, I can think of a few. Okay, uh, I can think of, this is a- I'm sorry, in the wild, but in the wild, not, not in captivity. I think, I, but, think I, might have, I might have one. Okay. Uh, yeah, go ahead, I've got another one, so. Michael, I don't know if this is confident with this, but maybe the the Joe's box turtle, one of the yeah. Kukura. Okay, no, that's one. Yeah, I box, box turtle that I know of hasn't been found. That is correct. McCord's box turtle. Can you think of two more? Two more that I know of that are rec recently, uh, relatively recently described within the past. One of them actually, like. 10 or 12 or more years ago. Um, and the other one, um, like five or six years ago, four or five, maybe. Okay. Re re this was really recently. Uh, yeah, that's kind of a tough one. My mind is going immediately to Asia for this. Cause that's sort of what yeah, same. you would expect. Um, hmm. Yeah, thinking out loud is sort of tough to do. Uh, but we, I think we've 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 maxed out the Kaora. All all the other Kaora have been yep. found. So that is correct. Those are the two Kaora that have not been seen in the wild. Right, right. By outsiders. Yeah, recently. Yeah, what's uh, no New Guinea stuff has been found. 
Uh, you're you're onto something there. Oh, okay. Is Both of these turtles have the same species name. I'll tell you that. But they're two different gene, two different genera, but both have the same species name. This is okay. This is no. I'm... Kill a Jason, you... No, I think I no. No, we already we were already there, Jason. Oh, gotcha. <laughs> we already got My bad. I'm... <laughs> I'm like steps behind everyone. I just he's he's the two species uh... name. So you said two different genera? No, that that was valid though. Two different genera, but the, the, the same name is the same. Yeah, and not Macordi. No, and it was they, they've been described recently. I don't know. One of them was described probably about two thousand seven or six, and one oh, was a few years ago. Uh, Emidura and Elsia, those two genera. Emidora is one. Emidora gunalenai and Kelodyna gunalenai. Emidora gunalenai uh, is the black Emidora from the Bird's Head uh, Peninsula and Irianjaya Far West. And then the Kelodyna gunalenai is from the Tamika region along the southern, southwestern coast of Papua New Guinea. Right. Uh, New Guinea of Irianjaya, not Papua, of New Guinea itself. Yeah. And those haven't been, those are just from captive specimens then. then those were collected by somebody uh, in the wild, like some local collector collected them. Um, but no one has gone there and looked at them as far as I know. No, no turtle person or biologist or, or even Indonesian biologist as far as I know. No one has gone there and actually looked at them. That's, Beyond yeah, those are yeah. interesting. The Emmy the Duragunalina are like, they're like a black version of the yeah. uh, the yeah. subglobosa yeah. almost, yeah. and they have these nice they have nice little thin yellow lines on their sides of their head, and uh, yeah, they're all black. Yeah, they're they're neat looking. Yeah, those are some interesting turtles. I'll give you all one right. more. You guys can get this. What's the southernmost occurring turtle on the planet? Other and, than outside of the seven marine species, we're always excluding the marine species. Extant. Extant. Yes, extant. All right. Some stuff in Antarctica, but it's dead. <laughs> uh, uh, that's actually a good question. Um, oh, I, I can't. There can't okay, be that well, many options. There are not that many options. Southernmost. Yeah, I, I, I have an idea, but I, I'm trying to think about this a little bit more. Uh it's actually a tough question because it kind of points to the lack of specific geographical knowledge of latitude. Yeah. Yeah. There's that too. <laughs> <laughs> uh, from Australia. I, I, I don't think that there's anything that could be more south than what I'm thinking of, but. What do you got? Uh, Chaco tortoise. That's it. Yeah. What about yeah. freshwater? Okay, that's. <laughs> I wasn't even. I was thinking. Maybe maybe scorpion mud turtle actually because yeah. if they Ch go there, this like... is the the, the 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 I believe is the 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 lowest the, low, the lowest latitude in south um uh down into well into our way down into Argentina, and then 
in a very close, fairly close second and third is Caledina Langicolis and um, uh, Emidora Macquarie right down there in Melbourne, Australia, just a few degrees above that. Yeah. Species, but I wasn't confident. But and if um, Langicolis, you know, it's it's presumed that they were um, translocated or introduced to Tasmania, that northern end of Tasmania. But if not, that would make them really the, the, the lowest or bright, bright at a tie with um, Chalensis. <laughs> All right. Well, that, that's, questions. yeah, those are some great questions. And, and impressive, too, that you came up with them that fast. A lot of people in the past, it's it's been tough because you ask them and it's just on the spot. <laughs> that's why I started doing it prior to that. But, yeah, thank you. Well, there's a turtle, uh, right. so you know we kind of do this stuff all the time. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> yeah, right, right. It's uh, it's also we like to like. I, I guess we like to test our knowledge too. It's yeah. it's sort of a fun oh, thing. Course, yeah. Not yeah. many other spots to do it. But yeah. uh, all right. Well, thank you, Chris, for coming on today. Thanks uh, for having uh, me. I enjoyed it. Yeah, been a pleasure to talk with you, and yep. uh, looking forward to seeing you at the TSA meeting and yep. and future events. In August, you gonna come in August? This yep. August? Yep, we'll be here. I'll be there. Excellent. We'll see you then. All right. Yep. Cool. All right, for everyone out there, uh, this is, I guess, episode thirty-one, beginning of season two. Uh, it's exciting, and yeah, if uh, if you guys are listening and interested, the Turtle Survival Alliance, the annual symposium on the conservation biology of tortoises and freshwater turtles is going to be held in August in South Carolina. So definitely look into that. And uh, you can find the Turtle Survival Alliance online. We'll put a link to their website below uh, and, and definitely go and support them. They're doing some incredible work. So we will see you all later. <laughs>